Welcome to 50 Tastes of Grey. I'm Matthew Gray, and on today's culinary journey, my guest is David Page, the visionary behind Food Network's Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Page, a Minnesota native, transitioned from the news division to food exploration during global assignments. His love for food seamlessly integrated into his work on Good Morning America, culminating the creation of Triple D in 2006, a cultural phenomenon celebrating American eateries. By the end of our time together on this interview, David mentioned that we're new best friends. Yay! Anyway, David Page's impact extends beyond TV. As the author of Food Americana, which I just got and read, I really loved it, he delves into culinary stories, and his production company, Page Productions, continues crafting food-focused shows. Page revolutionized food television, preserving and celebrating American cuisine's unique tapestry. So, as you relish flavors at a local diner, toast to David Page. He's the man who brought hidden gems to our screens and ignited our love for diners, drive-ins, and dives. Cheers to the culinary maestro. If you'd like to stay up to date with me and 50 Tastes of Grey, please visit my website at lovelife.com anytime at all. Now, enjoy the show with David Page. David, how are you? I'm delightful. I had some problems logging in for some reason, but uh, those are gone. Hey, man, really nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Where are you? Uh, In my office. But you don't mean that, David. No, I was being broader than that. Honolulu, Oh, you're in Hawaii. That's right. I can give you exact (laughs) coordinates if you'd like, but it would take me some time. Okay, which island? Oahu. Gotcha. The worst traffic I have ever experienced in my entire life. Yeah, you know, that's a pretty crazy stretch. You would think that uh, for a place that has a smaller population like this, that there wouldn't be this kind of traffic. It's insane. It's also, it's weird. I I haven't been there for a few years, but I shot there a few years ago, not really knowing Hawaii at all. And the impact of Asian tourism, the fact that um, shops accept yen in hotels blew my mind. I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but it was just... I, I did not realize. Yeah, this this appears to be like the most kind of international flavored, bigish city uh, in the United States. With well, what so is much, it to Tokyo? Like six hours, five hours? I mean, it's not that far. Yeah, it's about five or six hours. So yeah. it it's just as easy to get to Tokyo as it is to get to uh, you know Jersey. And uh, each place offers something unique of its own. We are, we offer great tomatoes and oil refineries. Right. Uh, you are you offer pokey. So everything evens out. You know, you were here not so long ago. Didn't you come here with Triple D? No. The last time I was there, I, I haven't been involved with Triple D for centuries. Uh, I was there doing a series for a Chinese-American zillionaire who liked uh-huh. to free dive. And we did an episode in Hawaii where he was free diving for tuna, didn't catch any. Uh, but they bought one from a guy in a passing boat and we had pokey with tuna that had been in the water an hour earlier. It was unbelievable. Was Truly it the unbelievable. Blue, do you know whether it was the bluefin or the yellowfin? Do you know? Do not know. Do because not know. It was incredible. I think it's the bluefin, which is the, the fish yeah. that can sell for a million dollars, you know? Well, uh, you can sell anything for whatever someone will pay. And, right. uh, I mean, basically, the 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 sushi auction in Japan, the the three million dollar one, is a tremendous marketing tool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. With the, the not sure, I'd spend three mil on. You know, it's interesting because 
you think of tuna as exotic. I live next door to Long Beach Island, New Jersey, which is still a fishing port. And in August, we have fresh tuna because that's where uh, the Atlantic tuna are hanging out. Oh, okay. Uh, as, as uh, I don't know if they're going north or south or whatever, but no, the boats bring in tuna here, um, which is terrific since my wife loves pokey. Um, it's really good. I would so imagine there. that that the Atlantic tuna is probably a much more flavorful tuna because of the cold waters versus the warm water fish I that would, we get here. I would think so. But then again, your cuisine there is remarkably short of flavor because the only spice or seasoning that existed was salt. So, salt, you know, seaweed, kukui nut. Yeah, not yeah, too much. Yeah, but I mean, right. it's in terms of what we consider Western flavors. Um, with all due respect, Kahlua pork is the most boring dish I've ever had. Um, Isn't it and something I add, been making forever anyway. Yeah, well, I look, I, I add, and it's not in the Hawaiian recipe, but I uh -huh. add rice wine vinegar to pokey, so it has some fucking flavor. Pardon my French. Well, you know, that's kind of what the Filipinos have done. Also, they use a lot yeah, but, of uh, vinegar in their dishes and so on, even though it's well, like a favorite cuisine. Man. You have to yeah, have but see, I was to... disappointed uh -huh. that poi was not disgusting. Everything I ever read about <laughs> poi said it was disgusting. Right. It's, I mean, I'm not going to live on it, but it's, it's fine. It's sort of a starch, kind of, I guess. That's exactly what it is. It's a complimentary satellite food. Yeah, uh, I mean, we went offsets. to, yeah. there's a, a farm where, where they're farming it, um, a, a taro root. That's run by the university. I remember spending a fair amount of time up to my knees in water, um, supposedly learning how to do it, which was not high on my list of shit to learn, but I learned it. <laughs> you know, poi is not really high on most of our lists, but you know, what's interesting yeah. is that uh, a lot of the old timers, people even beyond where you and I are, Love the day old. They're the dead. Two day old. Right. Well, they're dead, but they they dug two the, day the old. Well, uh, does it ferment? Does it something does. start happening? Yeah. So you get yeah. a flavor. You get a little bit of something going on. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. are you a native Hawaiian? No, I'm, I was born in New York, uh, Syosset. Uh, Holy family. shit! My yeah. dad worked at Syosset High School when I oh was. Oh my god! Tiny. Really? I went to yeah, South I, Grove I, Elementary. I didn't go to elementary. Did I? Where did I go to elementary? Yeah, I did start going to elementary school. I, I, I was born in 54, so this was like 60. Um, I remember the turn off, was it, um, oh, what's the name of it? Uh, Hicksville Road. Right, Hicksville was, was close, a, South Oyster Bay was Road. A there was a, a wire company called Cerro Wire. They had a water tower. Oh. And that's where we used to, tell, we lived on... John Drive in the kind of wow. development a high school teacher could afford back then. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in a ranch house with with petrified potatoes in the backyard. Wow. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. That is pretty wild. You know, I was thinking before the show, I, I was thinking that a couple of mentions like us, we might even kind of be brothers from another mother because I you watched never know. In interviews. It's pretty wild. Could happen. So yeah, born in New York. My family moved to LA when I was 10. They didn't mm. tell me right away, but I caught up with them eventually. You know, the old Rodney Dangerfield joke. Right. Yes, but boom. You. 
and then moved uh, moved here in the early 90s and then have lived in many, many other places and traveled to many, many other places as well. But this has been my home headquarters for a long time. Wow. Yeah. That's just lovely. Do you surf? Only on the internet. Good. How I tried you? to learn to surf because there's nothing like Hawaii, but Long Beach Island uh, actually was the home of the first Ron Johns. Uh, there is what by East Coast standards is acceptable surfing here. And I never had, I couldn't get over my fear of going under waves to come out on the other side. I just couldn't do it. Oh yeah. You got to make ground, right? When you're on the board. Yeah. I, I, I could not do that. I, uh, I was terrified. So I'll tell you something um, interesting about Hawaii and, and, and the surfing for people like you yeah. and I, who were, I, I don't know, would you refer to us as less than color, but people yeah. of, of yeah. our shading? Yeah. Have a yeah, difficult extremely, time. extremely, the whitest <laughs> white people on earth. Yes. We have a difficult time in, in this atmosphere. There's that whole, you might want to say reverse discrimination and the good old boy network is not run by a bunch of rednecks. It's run by a bunch of Asians. And so well, it's, there a you very, go. it's a very interesting world here. And then the, 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 the local population doesn't want us surfing in their water. <laughs> well, it's, it's fascinating because what little I could make out is that to live in Hawaii as a non-native or non-Asian, I guess, uh, requires a tremendous amount of respect for local culture. The day we were shooting was the first day they began shooting on a new season of, might have been Magnum, it was some show that shot in Hawaii. Uh And the morning newscasts were full of the ceremony that was held at the shooting location with traditional dancing and singing to bless the new season. And they clearly took it very seriously. Oh, they really do. Every time, you know, uh, Hawaii Five-O or Magnum or That was it, it was was Five-O. So yeah, they put a big giant screen on the beach and people go watch the premiere on the beach and it's like really important stuff. And no, I, I get that. It's, it's fascinating. Um, it's, it's funny when you turn on the news here though, when you first yeah. come here from the mainland and you turn on the news, they, they're giving you a surf report and they're talking to you about <laughs> the weather that we don't get, which is completely different than what you get in the rest of the world. Right. Well, look, it's, it's um, every place has a soul. The fact is Hawaii has more of a soul than Toledo, Ohio, but every place has a soul. And it's like what I tell people about eating. What should I eat where I go? Eat whatever the hell they make there. That's right. Do not, I mean, Long Beach Island, we have, in my view, the finest scallops in the world. And I say that having tasted them everywhere. Uh-huh. tremendous amounts of good fresh fish, you know, whatever you pull in off the Atlantic, especially monkfish, tilefish. And you go to a, a tourist uh, restaurant here, and this is a big tourist spot, and all the out of town is are eating fried shrimp. Well, first of all, the shrimp's from Indonesia. Secondly, what would you, why would you do that to the flavor? But I want to go up to their tables and shake them and say, have, have you tried our local oysters? <laughs> Right. You know, and you know they're local because at happy hour, all the oysters with famous regional names are two and a half bucks, and the local Delaware Bays are a buck. And the Delaware Bays are better. But you know, that's that's how one should eat in my rather haughty and self-centered view. I am the same way. I, you know, I'm a perfectly wonderful uh food snob like you. And I believe that when you travel, you should be eating the foods 
that came from right. that place and you should be breaking bread with the people from come who come right. from that place and you should talk about the art and the architecture as well. Yeah, and you don't have to like it. We're not on yet, sweetie. What can I do for you? I need your phone. You need my phone. Okay. Hi, sweetie. Um, that's my wife. Say hi. Hi, wife. She's busy. Sorry. Um, we've been married for 30 years. I just do whatever I'm told. It's a lot easier. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. A lot easier. Yeah, you don't want to rock um, the boat, Dave. What's that? You don't want to rock the boat. No, no, I'm happy. I cook, <laughs> well, she does everything else. You, We're good. you know, when you say that, your eyes kind of darted down. <laughs> really? Is that a soul? Caught it is. No, I, actually, we are. God forbid. <laughs> Really, really. Now, if I could just get our 30 year old daughter off the payroll, everything would be fun. Oh, okay. Yeah, right, right, right. That's what happens when you when you take an advanced degree in poetry. Uh, we're going to be talking about food the whole entire day. And as long as we're going to be doing that, we're going to be talking about Food Americana, your wonderful book that I have. Thank you. Um, I do want to ask you, what have you eaten today? Well, see, this is an interesting um, conundrum. Because, and I'll discuss, gladly discuss this on the show, but five or six months ago, I had to get serious about my weight and type 2 diabetes. So the way I eat has changed completely. And by the way, I brought my A1C down from 11.2 to 5.2 in four Excellent. months. Excellent. Uh, and I've lost That's fantastic. Pounds. Fantastic. Great, but great, great. I'm eating, I always say eat real food. I'm eating real food. Today, I ate the leftovers i only have two meals a day and two snacks oh. i work with a nutritionist and all that. so my first meal of the day was leftover homemade red sauce with brujol that i served for dinner last night she had it with pasta i had it by itself and right now on the stove i'm in the middle of a six-hour cooking process for braised short ribs oh fantastic which i will have for dinner tonight yeah i just okay. put them on at noon at the lowest possible setting, and six hours later, they'll be amazing. You know, David, I, we are recording right now, and I'm going to use fair. this. You can and, use anything you want, dude. And, and the reason that I bring that up is because it sounds like what your life is now as far as food and your relationship to it is mm -hmm. it dovetails, dovetails exactly with mine. I once upon a time was type 2 on six different medications and 100 pounds heavier than I am now. And I lived my life to excess. Well, congratulations. You know, living the life to excess, being a chef, cooking for the Eagles and Pink Floyd and Fleetwood Mac and people like that. And so it was always about food. It was always about too much food, always about excess. And well, now I'm exactly the place where you're at. Part of your problem is a chef, and I have infinite respect for chefs. They have a talent I don't have. I'm an extremely good amateur cook at home. Nothing's wrong with that, but I don't have the chef gene. It's like, I'm an amusing guy. I can be funny socially. People will say to me, why didn't you ever become a comic? The answer is because I'm not good enough to be Jerry Seinfeld. I'm not good enough to be a chef. You know, when I interview a chef and in the middle of the interview, he turns around and moves that piece of barbecue from here to here. And I say, you didn't touch it. You didn't see it. What'd you do? He said, well, it was time. I said, it was time for what? He said, I had to move it to a, a, a hotter place, a low, whatever. I don't have that instinct. If I invite you over for steak, let's say there's going to be four of us, chances are real good I cook five steaks because I'm going to cut into one to find out when I'm at medium rare. Okay, um, right, right. And I have to compensate 
for what you do instinctively. Now, that's not bad. Um, right. I, we I used was the pub yeah, test, I, I right? The pressure test, right? Yeah, I get but it. I was born with particular skills to be a TV producer. I didn't know it as a child, but that's what I do well. Better, in my egotistical opinion, than most people. That's what I was born to be. You were born to be a chef. Other people are born to be musicians. You, you have to, and if you don't have that level of skill, then you got to be comfortable telling people, hey, I'm an amateur, but, but I think this is going to be pretty good. Oh, yeah. You know, but from the perspective of I can't be at Jerry Seinfeld's level or Wolfgang Puck's level, there's a lot of room beneath those areas to where you can be. Well, yes, there is. I, maybe I'm not Seinfeld. I, I couldn't even be Carrot Top. Okay. <laughs> he, you know, I saw well, him. Well, by the, the way, other- is very talented. I, I saw him schmoozing with Bill Maher on their show, that the one that Bill Maher gets fucked up every yeah. week. And he has I, someone, I saw that too. And yeah. I was really kind of impressed with the guy. I yeah. thought he was interesting. Now he knows what he, look, Gallagher was the same. Yeah. Made us, is he dead? I think he died. I think made he did. Yeah, made a zillion dollars. And all you know of him derisively is that he smashes watermelons. I know. But the reality is he routinely sold out venues and made people laugh. Yep. I'm okay with that. That's what you know, it's all I, about. I've had one highly successful TV show, um, which I'm very proud of having done, uh, as opposed to the 9 million TV shows that I never sold. Let's talk about your super successful TV show. And then if okay. it's okay with you, if we, can, if we can talk about relationships, if we could talk about divas and personalities. I will talk about everything that I... I'm legally allowed to talk about because it's no surprise that my departure from that show uh, was not entirely voluntary and there was a legal settlement, but I'll, I'll answer everything I can. Okay. So do you have NDAs and NCAs involved with, with your party? Yeah, I have a, I have a settlement agreement that tells me to shut up about certain things. Okay. Let's, we let's can, just see we if can, we can, we can nip around that. the edges. Okay. Let's nip around the edges. Let's first okay. of all, talk about your youth and how you became this person who ended up being a, a really, really top flight oh, producer. Uh, I was lucky. And that's kind of you to say. I realized I wanted to be in broadcasting when I was a young child. We were driving from Long Island to visit my grandmother in the Bronx, approaching the Whitestone Bridge. And William B. Williams of WNEW was on the radio, goofing around with his engineer. And he said to him, what's that Fakakta dance you do? Now, Fakakta is, are you Jewish? I'm Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. Fakakta is Yiddish for shitty. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, and I said to my father, I was in the back of our, I think it was a 56 Ford. It might've been the 61 station wagon. Anyway, I said to my father, I want to do that. And my father, uh, an academic uh, and a snob in that respect, great guy, said, no, you don't. That's, that's not a job. But from that point forward, I, I wanted to be in broadcasting. And what's funny is I was later a copy boy at WNEW Radio. Oh, is that and, right? Uh-huh. And I got, to, uh, I got to write. I went to WNEW to be a copy boy in my first or second year in college and thought at the time, NEW was the highest billing middle of the road radio station in America. It was just, it was it. 
And I assumed it would be the biggest of the big time. And the first job I was assigned as a copy boy was to listen to WOR and steal their helicopter traffic reports and run them into Gene Clavin in the morning show. Anyway, so I, I, I got interested in, uh, in broadcasting when I was young. Grew up in Western Massachusetts near the Mount Hermon School for Boys, a prep school, which is now Northfield Mount Hermon. And my father was involved with the student Jewish community there because it was the school was founded by um, a uh, an evangelist, uh, Dwight L. Moody. The concept of practicing religion, <clears throat> pardon me, whatever's your whatever yours was, that's not how it was originally, was ingrained into the curriculum, and you had to go to a, a chapel service once a week, and the Jewish students put on their own. And they would have my father in as a guest speaker from time to time. He was, you know, as I said, he was the dean of the local community college. He was a reasonably good speaker there. And uh, uh, I would go with him. And after a couple of trips, I realized that this high school has its own radio station. Ah. So I told my father, I want to go to Mount Hermon. Now, I, I made it sound like I was looking for, uh, pardon me, my chair keeps falling. I made it sound like I was interested in a better education, but I just wanted to play on the radio. And once I started on the carrier current station, I got a weekend job at the local uh, daytimer and, you know, went from there. <clears throat> Pardon me, worked my way up in radio and TV, followed jobs around the country, finally got hired by NBC as a producer. First, I freelanced for them in Atlanta. Then I got hired full time in Chicago. I had been on uh, along the way. I, I had carved out a niche for myself as an investigative reporter on television in some reasonably large markets. I was on the air in Phoenix, which was only market 35 at the time, but Atlanta and, and Houston. But my real skill was in producing and uh, ended up at NBC. Pretty quickly, they sent me overseas. I spent a number of years there. The, the high point would have been covering all aspects of the fall of communism. I, I uh, Ran the Romanian Revolution on site. I walked through the Berlin Wall the night it opened, all of that good stuff. Uh, came back to the States, uh, co-created the Weekend Today show for NBC, went to ABC, senior produced Good Morning America, which meant the show was mine, subject to the EP once every three weeks, uh -huh. and running the investigative unit at 2020. I left there as network news began to change. Not nefariously, I just thought the golden age was behind us. Got a job as the senior vice president at a home shopping channel. Realized very quickly that was a bad move. Yeah. Opened a production company, starved for a while, and then accidentally landed diners. So that was that. Let's take a few steps back. When you were doing the investigative okay. stuff, did you find yeah. that you were touching some buttons? Uh, were you instigating or uh, what were you evaluating? Yeah, I, you... I had a guy, uh, I'm doing a, a piece about uh, in Houston about uh, unethical private eyes. We set up an office and we hired them and we had a hidden camera and they all suggested they would do really illegal things. And then I put it on the air. I went to follow up with one of these guys, and as I get to his front door, I hear, come on in, followed by the racking of what I'm pretty sure was a shotgun. Uh, so I didn't go in there. But but you knew what uh, was, yeah, was yeah. about to come. <laughs> uh, you know, you never, at least at that age, single and stupid, it never occurred to me something truly bad could happen. So You know, it's funny. Uh, 
when I was writing restaurant reviews for Hawaii's largest newspaper, Editorial, which I was. The advertiser? The Honolulu advertiser. Yeah, I was their yeah. guy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, more than a couple of times, people from the sales department tried running me down in the parking lot. So I totally get, yeah. you know, the gun getting cocked. Yeah, but know, to or, do investigative work, you, you need backing. Uh-huh. I mean, I really came into my own at KPNX in Phoenix, where the news director at the time, a guy named Al Buck, who over the years has mentored people such as Katie Couric. Al is probably the greatest news executive who ever lived. And I remember coming into his office one day after wasting a tremendous amount of time and money on what turned out to be a fruitless investigation. And he said, okay, I mean, it happens. And, and off I went. Uh, he, he was the best. And, and you need that kind of support at any time. I mean, look at ABC News. I got sued once for a piece I did. It took years. It was dismissed. But you have to have management that's willing to support that sort of thing. And, and as an aside on the financial state of modern journalism, most or much of that has gone away in most of the industry, which is a shame. But, but broadcast properties especially are seen as profit centers, uh, generally owned by large corporations who don't give a rat's ass. Oh, yeah. Do you find that most of the networks will stand behind their people? And if so, is it because they believe in I haven't, you? Or? I have no evidence that they won't. I uh -huh. don't know what isn't getting on the air. Right. I mean, uh, Ronan Farrow claims that they wouldn't put his uh, Harvey Weinstein piece on the air. Uh -huh. uh, and I suspect the truth on that is he didn't quite have it yet, but they shut him down when they shouldn't have. Right. Okay, I want to get back now to... Uh Diners, drive-ins, and dives. Let's talk a little bit about okay. the food. Let's talk about you having created it. Now, before you created it, there was, mm -hmm. I guess, a competition show. This was at the beginning of competition shows on the Food Network because prior to the Food Network doing competition shows, what they would do would be cooking shows. Well, they were mostly what's called dump and stir. Someone showing you to cook something. Fair enough. Now it's become... Well, now it's all competition. So it's completely it's, yeah. crazy, you know? Yeah. But, but I saw this kid had a mm -hmm. lot of great energy. He was a bit freaky looking. He won mm -hmm. the competition. Next thing mm -hmm. I know, he's the star of Triple D, which you created. Mm -hmm. How did mm -hmm. you join forces with him? How were you introduced to him? By, by accident. I, I, I had done some work for the Food Network through Al Roker's production company. Al worked for me technically. I mean, big time hosts don't work for show producers at the network level. But I was the co-producer of the Weekend Today show when Al was <clears throat> on that show, not the main show. When I opened my own production company, I was starving. So I called him up and said, do you have anything I can do? He said, sure. So I, he started subcontracting a fair amount of Food Network stuff to me through which I became familiar to the Food Network. Uh, we both acknowledged I wasn't going to get rich as a subcontractor, so I started pitching them directly. The good news is they knew me, so there was a particular executive who would take my calls, but they weren't buying. One day, I'm on the phone for the 800th time with this same executive who's being kind to listen to me, and I guess she got started to feel sorry for me or something. Thing. And she said, I had done a documentary, sort of a doc, for Al, for them on uh -huh. diners. And she said to me on the phone, 
do you have anything else about diners? And I said, oh, absolutely. I'm developing this show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And I told her all about it. And she said, you know, that that actually sounds good, which she had never said to me before. She said, uh, this was late on a Thursday or Friday. I recall this sun going down. And she said something to me, like, uh, get me a write-up on Monday. We have a development meeting on Tuesday. Great. Except I was not developing a show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Thives. I had pulled the name out of thin air or a body part, if you want to be more scatological, <laughs> and just kind of BS'd my way through what it would include. Now I had like two or three days to, to make a show out of it. Pulled together. So I, yeah, I called all around the country because... Uh, um, this was back when you actually called people. I researched and put together uh, a one-hour special, uh, wrote it up, sent it to her. They had the meeting Tuesday. Shortly thereafter, they picked up a one-hour special. Now, they didn't expect this to have legs. Even after it caught on, an executive said, we don't figure this has more than a couple seasons in it because there just aren't that many restaurants. They're now in season 40-something. Anyway. I did the special. Their thinking at the time was that, uh, first of all, Guy had won the Next Food Network star competition. That's which what back I was referring then, to. they yeah. thought they would actually discover new stars that way. As it turns out, the only one who's ever broken through from that contest was Guy. Right. But back then, they had big hopes. And they had asked some big deal production companies, not some schmuck with an answering machine in minnesota they had asked the big boys to come up with prime time projects for guy they they wanted to put him on the air in the following season anyway uh they figured this would keep him you know in front of the public for a while the special i did the special they were surprised by how well it rated and they were more surprised i suspect by the fact that the other production companies submitted proposals they didn't like so now they were kind of stuck. They wanted Guy on the air in prime time. They didn't like the other things. This had done well. So they picked up a short first season and, you know, it, it, it did well. The, the fact is Guy was green as hell. He had to learn almost everything, but he had more natural talent mm -hmm. than anyone I've ever worked with. So he, he sucked it up like a sponge. You still had to carefully shape him in the edit room. Um, to oh, yeah. prevent his excesses from coming out. And I don't know what they do today. It went well. And I executive produced the first 11 seasons. I could definitely see why they chose him. He, had, you know, he definitely has that oh, kind of... It comes through the screen. Look, TV is about spending time with people you like. Yeah. And Guy's television persona is definitely someone you want to hang out with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What was the relationship like uh, between the two of you during filming? Were you at each other's throats all the time? Because it didn't appear as no. though that was the case. Really? You're talking about an article that got published later. No, we were, uh, I thought, the best of buds. Uh -huh. And I can't go into detail, but clearly at some point we were not. <laughs> right. <laughs> I will say this without talking this is a hypothetical. I'm not going to talk about Guy here. I will simply point out. Well, he's not here, so that wouldn't be fair yeah. either. So. It's not unusual in television for someone who suddenly breaks big to want to distance themselves from whoever helped create them uh -huh. or helped them become big. Um, you saw that with Katie Couric after Jeff Zucker left. It's just not unusual. And I, I can't get into farther detail other than to repeat what I've said, which is true. 
that he had more natural talent than anyone I ever met for television. And he was a quick study. And uh, I was very proud of the show that I made for 11 seasons because for those 11 seasons, I got to do something very few people on television get to do, which is to have a vision and execute it. It was a great experience. I so wanted to be on the Food Network back in, I guess it was the late 80s when there was uh, a little bit of buzz beginning with that. I was mm -hmm. thinking, I have to get a show. I have to get a show. And so, you know, I've been following it for a long, long time. And, and that show, definitely, you really put it together. Whose idea was the Red Camaro? Mine, but it's because my initial idea for the special was to get him a classic car in each location. And every uh -huh. city we went to, I borrowed a car. And then bought the Camaro. We only had three months between the special and getting the show on the air, which is insane. So I reached out blindly to the woman who owned that Camaro in Boston and paid far too much for it. But I was always a Camaro fan. My wife's first car was a 67 red Camaro. Uh, so I bought the car. And it paid for itself a million times over. So that's not an issue anymore. It did all right. It's funny, though. You, you have the. Um, nostalgia doesn't include the uncomfortable one day in between shooting i was keeping the car we had a hobby farm in minnesota I was keeping the car on the farm and i said to my wife you know what let's take the camaro out so we dropped the top and headed for a back road and we're zipping along and i say to my wife how fast do you think we're going she says i don't know 75 i said uh, more like 50. <laughs> There's no suspension in those things at all. Right, right. How did you get this 4,000-pound prop from one city we, to another? Uh, we hired someone to drive it. There was a, a trailer. Okay. A car went in the trailer along wow. with a fair amount of broadcast equipment. And it was driven across the country by someone who was paid to drive it across the country. So it was always driven back in the day. I guess driving was well. It was, was hauled. Easy. I mean, you didn't. Yeah. You didn't. Uh, you didn't drive it. Right. You popped it on a flatbed. Well, it was a, like a horse trailer, but yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah, that that was a really good idea because it was this wonderful visual identifier that kept you know being very consistent. Well, you have to throughout. see people. I was always surprised by something that Bourdain's crew used to do on his show. I read something in one of the TV magazines about how their DP was thrilled because every time they went someplace, he, he tried to shoot it differently. And mm -hmm. I thought that was horseshit. You want people, I mean, if you open a box of spaghetti and, and you, you find rice, you're, that's not the meal you were after. There has to be a structure and a similarity around um, a show that repeats new episodes so that people know what the hell they're watching. They, they have right. to be comfortable that this is the institution with which they want to spend the next few minutes. It was important to me that there be a, a continuity, that, that you get what you expect. Now, within that continuity, you want it to be as brilliant as you can be. Yeah. But there's a great expression. I don't think it came out of TV, but only with discipline can you have creativity. You have to do the basics really well. And then on top of that, you can become Van Gogh. But if you right. don't, if you don't do the basics, you're screwed. Yeah. Persistence and determination really going to well, help I, you out. I, yeah. I used to, uh, here's a perfect example. Um, when I was with NBC, we had a relationship with the CBC, the Canadians. Uh, we would swap material with them if we were ever in the same location. 
During the Romanian Revolution, Sheila McVicker, one of the greatest correspondents ever in network television, she ended up working for at least one of the American networks. She was with the CBC. And I had a ton of camera crews, and she had one. And I made a deal with her. I said, Sheila, go out and find a story every day that no one else has. I will give you all of our basic coverage. You bring back the cherry on top of the Sunday. And she did day after day. Wow. Wow. She sounds amazing. She was incredible. Yeah. You know, when you talk about the, just the contrast between Guy's personality, who was mm -hmm. probably fairly easily guided early on in his career, and Bourdain, who you brought up a, a moment ago, mm -hmm. Bourdain always kind of considered himself this rebel, auteur, uh, well, filmmaker. Well, Bourdain considered himself initially above television. Before right. he got into it, he was vocal about how horseshit television was. And, and he remained vocal about, about his distaste for Guy, which I always thought was crap. Once Bourdain started making money in television, then his criticism of the medium as a medium um, was reduced. Although he did insist on some stupid shit, as, as I've read, that somehow I think made him feel better about having sold out to TV and that what I've read is that he didn't want his crews to light anything because it was artificial and it would mess uh, with the conversation. Well, I got an idea. Why don't you not breathe so people don't think you were a human? I mean, <laughs> I just thought that was obnoxious, snobbish, elitist behavior, but I yeah. shouldn't speak ill of the dead. He did kick a lot of ass on his, uh, in his lifetime. And, and of course he said a lot of despicable things about people on the food network specifically. Mm -hmm. if, and if and no one he else. was, he became the cartoon that he railed against. Now I got nothing personal against Bourdain. I never met him. Uh, I thought his restaurant Leal was terrible. Yeah, that's what I hear. Looking forward to it. But again, Bourdain was not a chef per se. I mean, yes, he made a living cooking at one point. But Guy's not a chef. Guy's, guy's degree is in uh, hospitality management. And Guy's most famous dish is a pasta dish. You don't have to be a great chef. Although the longer one is in TV, and this is a generic comment, I'm not aiming it at Guy. The longer one is in TV, the smarter one starts to think one is. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. However, Guy did have to uh, compete and get through some fairly rigorous uh, exercises to, to win that competition. During yes, that he time. did. And I have yeah. no idea. You know what? I've never seen it. So uh, uh, he may have been wonderful. I can just tell you what I know uh, in person. And I'm not, I'm not bashing Guy. He and I did not end well, but he's incredibly talented and he deserves his success. This in no way was designed to bash him. I just wanted to kind of get a little bit of that interpersonal thing. No, look, at one time we were tighter than hell. Right, right. Well, that's a little bit of a sad story then when you think about. Oh, welcome to television. Come well, on. welcome to life, man, yeah. right? I mean, how many people are you not close to now that you were 20, 30 years ago? Actually, what's interesting is uh -huh. for me, I just turned 69. Facebook has been, and I know the kids don't use it anymore. Facebook has, has allowed me to reconnect with people from right. back then and find out that true friendships endure. Right. The, the energy, the feeling is still there. Yeah. True. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a thing going around Facebook among journalists 
I think TV journalists, post a picture of you on the job. Don't say anything about it. We want to flood social media with pictures of working journalists. I assume this is to remind people that we do play a role in society. And I, I, I posted a picture of me at Pope John Paul II's million-person mass in Łódź, Poland, back in the 80s. And almost instantly, an old friend of mine, who was also a producer back then, posted, ah, great memories. I covered his mass in Krakow. You know, it, wow. It, real friendships. And, and you'll find, I suspect this is the same in the world of food, but journalists such as myself, who, who were lucky enough to do this during the golden age, created, um, engaged in some really deep friendships. You know, there's only so many people who could walk up to you in the lobby of the hotel in Baghdad before the war and, and whisper, the guards over there are, are speculating about whether you're Jewish. They don't know I speak Arabic. I said, thank you very much. You know, it's, it's a unique club. You know, they talk about the, uh, the broadcasters and the journalists on the right and the broadcasting journalists on the well, left. Well, those aren't journalists. Well, whatever those they are. Those are opinion are, mongers. What? They bash each other every uh -huh. day when the cameras are rolling. That's and then it's, Oh, and then they go to the bar together. And yeah. they're having drinks. Well, that, that's, but see, that's not journalism. The, the, the better example is me and CBS and ABC trying to murder each other professionally during whatever big event we're all at. And then going to the bar together, that's, that's better. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's no greater moment than I was in the feed room feeding a story to New York, a relatively meaningless story out of Germany. The police had found some explosives and blew them up. And our shot of the explosives getting blown up was much closer than CBS's. And we were all feeding from the same place that night. After I fed my piece, CBS got on the four wire, the intercom, and asked their producer, uh, is that pool? And I said, no, that's not pool. That's NBC material. You guys uh, don't have it. <laughs> do networks have to ask to to lease or borrow or buy a piece of footage if they want to use it on their broadcasts? I don't know what the rules are these days. Everyone's uh, stealing everything. In my day, you just didn't take someone else's work. Right. Oh, that's you a completely different I mean, as a network, yeah. at the time, NBC was aligned with the BBC ABC was aligned with ITN, which screwed me badly one day during the Czech Revolution because ITN, the British broadcaster, got an interview with Václav Havel, the dissident who became president of the Czech Republic. Right. And because ITV got it, ABC was able to use it, and I couldn't. And, you know, New York was jumping up and down apoplectic, and I had to jump through hoops to get Havel the next day. <laughs> These days, they'd probably just steal it. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I, I think once the internet came along and people learned how to right-click and uh, borrow or save. There's a lot image, of that. Everything There's has changed. <laughs> um, yeah, times have changed. You know, a couple of times uh, so far during our chat, you've mentioned Minnesota or Minneapolis. So you're part of the, uh, the, the Frozen Chosen. No, well, I was. It's a tough place to be a member of the Chosen because, A, there's a lot of anti-Semitism, but B, yeah. there were few of us that the synagogues served a greater geographic area, and the kid that your kid sat next to in Hebrew school was an hour away from your house, so it was hard to use 
the synagogue as a way to establish friendships. Mm-hmm. Our best friends to this day are a couple and, and their kids now, who we met at the newcomers night at the synagogue in Glen Ridge, New Jersey, when we first moved there. It was different in Minnesota, but we, we moved there because having uh, the desire to leave network news and thinking I wanted to be some sort of big shot at a publicly traded corporation, I took a job at a home shopping channel, which I immediately regretted except for the stock options, which allowed me to fund my production company at negative income for three years before diners hit. Right, right. Of course, I, I, was also, I was also the only one among the senior VPs who had the cojones to convert my options before everyone else's were underwater. Yeah, that was smart of you. What are you drinking? Yeah, uh, I am drinking uh, ShopRite's cold brew, which I figured okay. out. Uh-huh. The same price per cup as a K cup. Oh, is that right? Okay, so now that you the problem it. is Shoprite, uh-huh. which is a great supermarket, is using the cheaper plastic. So it's it comes filled to the top, and the first one that you pour inevitably goes all over the place. <laughs> the plastic, but yeah, no, I drink about three thousand cups of coffee a day. If you're drinking the the cold brew, how does it how does it stack up against uh, in flavor, depth, richness, et cetera, against uh, an espresso that you might make in the in the morning a hot one? Well, it's not going to be an espresso, but let's let's be clear about something. Uh-huh. I started working in newsrooms when I was fourteen or fifteen with a cup of really really bad coffee next to the typewriter at all times, and it was like the old days, style. the big manual with the big keys, <laughs> and no one at a radio station would ever refill the coffee pot. So you always had this level of burned crap on the bottom. So I do not require sophisticated coffee to make me happy. Mm -hmm. I'll drink any swill. I hate Starbucks. I think, I mean, if you are going to get into the issue of good coffee, Starbucks has convinced a nation and now much of the world that if you buy bad beans and burn them, you can convince people that's what coffee should taste like. Yeah. And it yep. isn't. Right. Um, and then if you feed them this fake food that you heat it up in a convection microwave, that that's food. I remember my daughter was graduating from Columbia University in New York, and uh, we went to graduation, which didn't take her off the bill because she still had three years of graduate school there. But anyway, I was the designated driver as in I was the one who was supposed to go across the street and get breakfast and coffee for all of the relatives. So I crossed the street and there's this huge line snaking out of one place down the um, sidewalk. And next to it, there's a storefront with no one in line. The place that everyone was, was in line for was Starbucks serving crap. The place next door was a bodega. With some guy uh, behind a grill that had been seasoned for years, turning out exquisite bacon, egg, and cheese breakfast sandwiches on the kind of roll you can only get in New York, and real coffee. I went in there to have to get breakfast for everyone. That's real food. Oh, yeah. Um, as a country now, we've convinced people that Applebee's is your neighborhood bar. Oh, dear. David, now yes. that... You and I are are part of the low carb revolution because we want yes. to live a long, healthy life. Yeah, I gotta life. check my A one C. Keep. Oh wait, no, my wife okay. got my oh, phone. I can't. You're not wearing a CGM, or you are. I, it's right here, but I gotta okay. I gotta get my phone to read it. Okay, 
So now that we're both part of the low-carb revolution, we're not going to call mm -hmm. it keto because that freaks people out. It's not keto. Keto is different. Keto is very high in fat. Right. Um, right. Sure. And has its issues. But go ahead. I mean, if we're going to we're going to split hairs, it's all about reducing or eliminating the carbs. Am I right? Eliminating the simple carbs, the okay. refined carbs. In other words, the carbs that you find in beans and red peppers are your friend. The carbs that you find in berries are your friend because the fiber level is almost as high as the carb level, so you get close to zero net. But having said that, I, I totally understand what you're saying because I've been doing this and now I'm coaching people on how to lose weight and how to reverse their type two. But right. when, since you're the one wearing the CGM, do you see that you don't have the spike when you're eating uh, squash or zucchini or tomatoes or any of those? I, I don't really spike off of that. Um, mm. I do spike. I, I'm now at the point with uh, my numbers are down low enough yeah. that my endocrinologist says, look, you can cheat if you want. I don't really want to cheat. Right. But I did the other day, we visited some friends in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Well, the friends I told you about that we met at synagogue. Yeah. And yeah. Ann Arbor is, is famous for Zingerman's Deli, famous for the pastrami and famous for their rye bread, which I came to find out is the best I've ever had. So we built into my eating plan for that visit that I would do lunch at Singerman's and, and have real rye bread on pastrami. That kicked me up from 110 to 156 for a couple of hours. But it was a worthwhile but experience. A, 156 is still in the legal zone, and B, good God, it was. that's probably the best pastrami sandwich I've ever had. Can you have a great pastrami sandwich without the bread? Probably not. No, no, no. You have to, <laughs> especially their bread is crusty it's it, look the guys at cats is acknowledged the owner of cats is, has acknowledged on the record that he wishes he could buy better bread but he can't afford it at their price point and the bread at cats is, is it's all right the bread at zingerman's blew my mind is also right? they 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 slice their pastrami thinner i think cats slices it's too thick uh, my famous favorite pastrami sandwich was at the stage deli when it was open but it ain't no more. Although right, I had right. a friend from the Midwest, I took him there, who literally wanted to put mayo on pastrami and I wouldn't let him. Oh, speaking of mayo on, on pastrami, you did yeah. a show recently that I watched and I'm not going to mention- I probably didn't. What? You were the guest on an interview. Oh, oh okay. That I watched. And uh, he did a, like a lightning round with you and he was asking questions yeah. <laughs> of you. And you were saying, you know, I'm a New York Jew. I don't kind of get the whole, you know, white bread and mayonnaise thing. <laughs> it was hilarious. Do you, do you know what I'm well, referring to? I vaguely remember. Uh -huh. um, but uh, no, white bread and mayonnaise. Now, having said that, uh -huh. there are a couple of things that white bread is perfect for. One of them, frankly, because it has less flavor than a buckwheat blini, is toasted under caviar. It is at that point an extremely neutral palate perfect for that it's also good with peanut butter and toasted for a blt i mean everything has its purpose you brought a blini yeah, to, to this host yeah. uh, and uh, he he had asked you you know pancakes or waffles and you, you said pancakes and he said little ones or big ones now you uh -huh. might remember and then you talked about yeah. Bellini and he had like his, his eyes were rotating in different directions because he had never yeah, heard the word um, <laughs> 
Yeah. Look, blini, blini are wonderful. They're buckwheat pancakes. They're just tiny. Right. And, uh, you know, then I started immediately thinking about blintzes. And that's just a whole other part of the world there. Well, a blintz is a wonderful thing. Um, oh, yeah. You know, my grandparents lived on the Lower East Side. So back in the day, I was taken to Ratner's a fair amount. Um, not just for the abuse, but for the food. <laughs> and um, What's one without yeah. the other? Well, it's, it's I, I take the boiled beef. Uh, well, not at Ratner's. You'll have a baked um, apple. Yeah, have a baked apple. No, rice pudding. You oh. got to have the rice pudding. <laughs> Because that's what you had for dessert there. Did you ever go to Jonas Schimmel's? You know what? I never have. But that's because we had a familial loyalty to Gabilas Knishas. Uh -huh. Gabai, the owner, I forget his first name. We just called him Gabai, was my grandfather's best friend. So when I was a child, I would be taken to the Gabila Knish factory under, I think it was the Manhattan Bridge. It might have been the Brooklyn Bridge. No, it had to be the Manhattan Bridge. Anyway, uh, I would be taken there. Gabai had invented the first automatic knish-making assembly line, and we would have knishes right off the assembly line. It was the best. So I've always been a Gabila's knish guy. Sorry. Fair enough. Fair enough. So knish, the way I grew up, just had one filling. It was potato. And potato. Onion, right? Yeah. That's it. Well, no, you could also have kasha. Kasha was an original also. Okay. But now it's like they've got everything, you know, the apple you pie, know, pumpkin spice. <laughs> yeah, and they have, you know, they have raisin don't uh, raisin bagels too. That's that's a crock. Also, you and I grew up in the time that they never had an everything bagel. Up until 1980, all you had was, you know, sesame or garlic or you know, poppy or something salt. like that. You could get salt. Okay, but now it's like blueberry bagels. Come on. No, that's look. I'm not opposed to the. Everything bagel that is the everything bagel, because basically you're dealing with salt, onion, and garlic. People have to understand, though, that that only goes with certain things. For example, right. that's a great bagel for um, Nova, any kind of smoked salmon. You bet. It's a lousy bagel for belly locks, which is okay. salt cured. Right. Thus, there's far too much salt in the taste. Belly locks should be eaten with a plain bagel or a sesame bagel with more cream cheese than a Nova bagel. You look, food's all, I'm, I'm talking to a chef, so I'm telling him, food's about balance. It's like right. you go out to get a lobster roll and everyone's so thrilled that it was just heaped with lobster. That's a bad lobster roll. Right. The lobster roll taste is the proper balance between the sweetness of the lobster the crunch of that split top roll and the butter. And if you fill it with lobster, well, that's great. You can have all the lobster. It's like, I think the, the overstuffed deli sandwiches are stupid. You know, here's two pounds of meat. No, give me enough meat for a sandwich. That's fine. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, you can take the other two pounds home and that's why it, whatever that deli is in Edison, you know, the sandwich is like 50 bucks, but yeah. Balance. You know, more is not necessarily better. That's right. Right. Just take a look at uh, Nouvelle Cuisine. Yeah, that's a little too small. Right. <laughs> have you been to any molecular places over the years? Yes. What I do have you been think overall? Most of them are horseshit. Some mm -hmm. of them are great. Alinea in Chicago is extraordinary. The, the bites are larger than many other tasting menus. And in the middle of the meal, at least when I ate there, he brought out a plate of traditionally French-style, Escoffier-style beef 
just to remind you, like, you know, Picasso painted realistic portraits before he went nuts. This was to remind you we're grounded in traditional cooking. And from that, we've taken off into these flights of fancy. Now, I love going to Alinea because we were thinking about doing a TV show there and we were guests of the chef and that's a lovely way to go. I thought the food there was terrific. Um, there can be a molecular element to uh, the food at Guy Savoie, which I enjoyed in Vegas, not, not in Paris. It was extraordinary. I loved the food at WD-50, Wiley Dufresne's place. I think the food at 11 Madison Park, and I have not been there since they changed to vegan or pseudo-vegan. Wow. I found the food at 11 Madison Park to be crap. Yeah. Um, it was far too much of a gimmick. The portions were tiny. It wasn't a meal. It was a stage show. And um, what a way to alienate, much, you know, uh, yeah. an entire population. Uh, now look, this, yeah, the stuff at Alinea can be insane, mm -hmm. but it's fantastic. Also, I mean, what they do, uh, have you been there? They do no, this dessert no. where they come out, they put a plastic tablecloth down, and then they start throwing stuff all over the tablecloth. Chocolate sauce and ice cream and whipped cream. and it, it, Your entire table becomes the dessert that you eat. I mean, that's, that's terrific. It's like a Jackson Pollock thing. It basically is a Jackson Pollock meal, uh -huh. um, only it tastes a lot better than latex. Yeah, right, right. Seeing as like you've eaten out probably more than most folks, what, mm -hmm. what's your take recently on the whole awkward tipping scenario that's going on around the country? I think it's country? absurd. I think yeah. it is time that we do away with the tipped minimum wage, that we pay people, as they do in every other country, for being professionals serving food. By the way, if you hand me a muffin from behind the counter, I don't owe you a tip. You right. did your job, damn it. Right. Now, the pressure's insane. I mean, you're, you're there, you check out, the thing comes up and says, do you want a tip? And I'm looking at the person next to me. So sometimes I give in to the, the pressure, but I don't, it's awkward. I don't enjoy it. It's awkward. And look, and when, when I tip... Of my own volition, I tend to tip heavy, but mm -mm. Well, that's, that's like the key, though, of your own volition means that, you know, someone yes. excelled in some certain areas yes. and you decided upon it, upon yourself, yeah. not to have some sort of screen staring you in the face. And not only do they ask you, would you like to tip? They want to know if you'd like to round up. No, I don't particularly want to round up. See, this is money and I'd like it. Right. Back round, in my how about pocket? rounding down? Yeah, I'd be glad to pay you a reasonable amount for the meal. And I'd like the owner of the restaurant to include in that enough money to pay his staff. But the places that have tried it, it's failed. Some big restaurateurs in New York tried it and nobody liked it. I mean, I, I don't know what the staff felt, but they, they pulled back. You're talking about uh, automatic 18% or whatever. That kind of thing? No, 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 no. Just no tips at all. It's built into the price. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, you've got to pay your people really well. Look, and for... yeah, but now it's getting stupid. There are restaurants putting an extra charge on to pay for health insurance for the staff. Don't do that to me. <sighs> Don't tell me that it's going to cost me $200 to get a new tire, but another $7 because you have health insurance for the guy. Chain. No, no, no. Give me a price. And then you do your own internal accounting. In what other sector do business owners ever ask the clientele, the customer base, to pay more 
Well, just, PBS, you get a tote bag. That's right. That's right. <laughs> At least they give you that a t-shirt yeah. and like, you know, hours and hours yeah. of begging. You get, a, you for get a tote bag and, yeah. um, occasionally, uh, Carl Castle leaves a message on your voice machine. That's all. Gosh, you know, it's crazy. I mean, you know, I owned a, a restaurant in Rotterdam and I had to take my American kind of upbringing and mm -hmm. say, you know, it's not the same. It's not going to be the same over what, here. What did you serve at your restaurant in Rotterdam? Just American style stuff, you know. And um, it, it was popular because it was American stuff? Yeah. And it was at a cruise port. There, there you go. go. Right. There you go. It's funny you say that. I think Rotterdam is an industrial city, but it is a cruise port. Didn't you bet. You bet. And yeah. so, you know, I'm actually really pleased that a lot of the places like uh, Amsterdam and Venice and so on are starting to limit their cruise travel. And the, Are they? Uh, about time. Yeah, it is about time. So they're uh, allowing Venice is ships. a mess. It is. Venice is just going to sink into the sea under the weight of American tourists wearing fanny packs. <laughs> Although I will say... Harry's Bar in Venice is one of the few overexposed tourist attractions that's still worth a visit. Yeah, yeah. yeah we've been promising to talk about Food Americana, your wonderful book. Oh, right, book. right, right. I forgot about that. My Tell us a little bit about that because, I mean, that's very, very cool. What are you looking for? My, a copy of my book. Oh, okay. I was going to, I mean, if we're plugging. Yeah, we uh, are plugging. Sure, why not? Oh, here we go. Hold on. I, Excellent. I, the room and came back with a copy of his book. Look at Beautiful. That. Okay. Am I in focus? Not I yet. Uh, there we put it right next to my face. It does. It's Wave up your hand out. in That's front incredible. of it. There you go. I don't know. Well, yeah. by the damn okay. thing, it's fuzzy. Food Americana. Yes. Tell us about the artwork first because it's kind of groovy. The artwork was done by someone I've never met by uh -huh. the publisher, which at the time was Mango. And uh, now it's in focus. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wasn't even sure I loved it, but apparently the world did. For years, I've been threatening to write a book because that's what TV producers do. We don't think the world gives enough respect to the difficult art of writing for television, where you can't just sit down and go, it was a dar dark and stormy night and Oedipus killed his father. Y <laughs> you can only tell the story. Thank you. You can only tell the story around and through the pictures and interviews that you have. It's always seemed to me it would be much easier to just write. And finally, after a number of years, I figured I would uh, I would give it a shot. I um, asked a question that uh, to which I did not know the answer, which is, is there an American cuisine? And if so, what is it? My eventual conclusion after a couple of years of work was, well, similar to the way America has been presented as a melting pot of cultures, that's our cuisine. We took a bunch of food items from countries and cultures not our own, most of which came here with immigrants, some of which were endemic to Native Americans. And from that, we modified those food ways to our tastes and our available ingredients and created a culture. Our, our cuisine, for example, sushi, in my view, is American cuisine today. It's for the most part not the sushi that's sold or enjoyed in Japan, it is our derivation of sushi, which tends toward the bigger and more use of rolls as opposed to simply uh, fish on rice or anything on rice. Sushi doesn't have to have fish. It has to have um, vinegar rice. Heck, I found a place in Oklahoma where they deep fry sushi rolls whole. 
remember that's the the state that that brought you chicken fried steak so they're big into frying how can you go wrong in america if you fry something you can't bagels were initially a new york jewish item then a new york item and now they're such a a widely accepted item that the most bagels in the u.s are sold by dunkin donuts now it's not the new york bagel uh that we grew up loving i talked to um Marvin Lender, one of the uh, original Lender brothers, because it was their incorporation of automated production and freezing that brought the bagel to the rest of America. And he said, no, it's, it's, it's not a New York Jewish bagel. We couldn't have sold that in the rest of the country. Um, and mass production changes things. I would like to think that Marvin would uh, prefer a real bagel from a New York bakery, but the bagel is now American cuisine, as is Chinese food, the way we evolved it. After Chinese restaurateurs came to uh, the West Coast during the gold rush in the 1800s to feed Chinese miners who had come looking for gold in attempting to uh, entice Americans into eating Chinese food, they realized that we were not going to go for traditional Chinese dishes that were heavy on offal and multiple textures and such. Hence, chop suey, whence came an entire cuisine derived from roots in Canton, but certainly no one in Canton's eaten beef and broccoli. And by the way, all of these Americanized cuisines, in my view, are perfectly valid as Chinese-American, Italian-American. Uh, there's nothing that says that food can't or shouldn't evolve. I mean, in China today, one of the most popular dishes is scrambled eggs and tomatoes. It's interesting, though, when you, when you talk about that, and I agree with you, what about the people who scream cultural appropriation? And that you, yeah, that's kind of what I think, too. Well, no, it, de- <laughs> it depends. Uh, Scrum's a little. I was horrified when Andrew Zimmern opened a Chinese restaurant in Minneapolis and publicly announced that it was his goal to save Midwesterners from what he referred to as shitty Chinese food. Uh-huh. Andrew, you're not Chinese. You're not particularly well studied in Chinese. You just put yourself in a place you shouldn't be. Now, having said that, when Rick Bayless cooks his version of Mexican food for Americans, he does it with a deep reverence for where it came from. He credits Mexican chefs before him who perfected these dishes. And I have no problem with Rick Bayless doing an homage. I have a lot of problem with Andrew Zimmern claiming it's his. A complete difference. Uh, on the, on the other hand, let, let the, you know, there, there's a fine line about appropriation. I don't give a damn that Bradley Cooper wore a prosthetic nose to play Bernstein. Right. I did not consider that anti-Semitic. I considered it him trying to be the character, and the character had a big... It's costuming. Yeah. I mean, and let's take it a step further. This whole Jew face argument that non-Jews shouldn't play Jews, or straight people shouldn't play gay, or gay people... It's acting. Do whatever the hell you want. Right. Okay? right. I mean, I, I, I would draw the line of minstrel shows, but, uh, <laughs> you know, there's, there's got to be some intelligence. Uh, the dog wants a treat. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. By all means. Pardon me? Everyone's got to enjoy. Fred? Hold on. Tell us about your animals. Is it a dog or do you have more yeah, than Yeah, we that? had two dogs. Both of them passed away not that long ago. And uh. Fred is Fred the Astonishing Beagle. 
Ah, okay. Never had a beagle before, and Fred is absolutely the best. We just spent 10 minutes talking about beagles. Oh, oh bagels. Where? I'm sorry. Hey, <laughs> I'm oh, Fred, you'd be great with cream cheese. Oh, yeah. You know, the thing is about the, the American Chinese food and how it became mm -hmm. so popular in my mind is back in, was it the 1800s when the railroads were getting built? We brought in the Chinese, we brought in the uh, Italians, we brought in the Irish. The Italians and the Irish dropped like flies, but the Chinese did not. And you know why that is? Why? Because they boiled water for tea. They You're boiled right, out that. all of the wee beasties and the things that kill you. Yeah. No, that, uh, that helped. <laughs> Understand, when Chinese food got to New York, it found uh, a couple of populations eager for it. Jews and blacks, right? Both of whom were unwelcome in many other restaurants. Yeah, but the yeah, Chinese, yeah. having been heavily discriminated against, were far more welcoming. Also, for the Jews, Chinese food was easier to pretend it wasn't unkosher because everything was cut up and covered in sauce. Right. Um, you Sweet know, my, grand, my grandfather used to take me to Mott Street. <laughs> my grandfather claimed that when he was an assistant attorney general of New York State, he ended the Tong Wars in Chinatown by gathering the Tong leaders and threatening to deport them. I don't know if that's true. And I love the story so much that I've never really tried to find out if it's true. Right. But it gets but I do table. know he he was an honored guest on Mott Street. I would go with him to all the oh, yeah. some parlors downstairs. And uh, of course, my grandmother one day destroyed it for him by forcing the waiter to fess up the shrimps and lobster sauce wasn't chicken. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Kind of an yeah. unfair thing to do, but. But that's funny. Tell us some more about the book, because I want to talk more about some of these oh, items. Okay. I was thrilled to find so many human-based origin stories for so many foods. You know, you, when you can put a face to something, like, um, you know, the Americanization of pizza. I got to hang out in San Francisco with Tony Gemignani, uh -huh. who has won pretty much every championship you can win for pizza and runs pizza school. And he let me audit his pizza school for a week. I, I didn't stay the full week. but And what I learned about the complexity of making pizza and the degree to which it is science as opposed to art, um, you got to start with science. You got to know the temperature, your dough, and, and you have to mix it very carefully and you use different proofing for different kinds. I mean, trying to properly bake a margarita pizza where you have no more than 90 seconds in the oven and yet you have to turn it a certain man it's hard it is so yeah hard. So i'm gonna give a, a shameless plug because you're Go near ahead. new york city there's a guy named scott wiener who does the I, pizza I tours yeah he does the yeah, new york I'm, city pizza tour yeah I've, I've i've actually interviewed scott oh have you i don't know if i don't know if he made it into the book or not but oh. yeah no i've chatted with him yeah he's great yeah, although he's you great. know there's a whole thing the Lombard, Lombardi's Lombardi, the, the, the alleged oldest pizzeria uh -huh. in New York turns out probably not to have been based on research done by a guy in Chicago using real estate records who found an older pizzeria listed on the tax rolls prior to oh. prior to that one. Uh, not that they've stopped promoting themselves as the oldest pizzeria and more power to them. A good pizza is is a work of art. And I say that living in New Jersey, and we have plenty of good pizza. 
So do you have a couple of favorite toppings or are you just like a margarita guy? I'm a margarita guy. And again, I'm not really eating pizza these days. Same here. Because, you know, uh, Raza's in uh, in Jersey City in the uh-huh. last couple of years got called out for being like supposedly the best in the country. Like, you know, okay. Uh, and I'm extremely dubious. But when we ate there a year or so ago, it was extraordinary. Just truly extraordinary pizza. Yeah, I think that uh, it kind of comes down to it being hyper palatable, like the top 10 foods are all extremely hyper palatable. They have some sort of mixture of sodium, fat, and sweet that people just can't get enough of, sort of like crack fries, right? Yeah, no, it's, and look, to some extent, and this is not a good thing, our taste in even the highest end of foods has been corrupted by the addiction to salt, sugar, and fat that the processors and the fast food creators have enticed us to. You know, that that said, can't beat a good pizza. <laughs> I know. I, I can kind of remember the last time I had it. Now I make pizza-flavored things, but I don't eat the bread, right? Every now and again, you're okay. A thin crust, like uh-huh. my endocrinologist says I can cheat now and then. If I were to cheat with pizza, it would be at the Star Tavern in, I think it's East Orange. It's one of the oranges in New Jersey that makes one of the greatest bar pies in the world. Bar Uh pies being incredibly thin, crispy crust. Right. So I could do the least amount of damage to myself with that. Now, would I rather have a margarita? Probably. It's the perfect pizza. Although most of the margaritas that people eat are not are not truly margarita because the proper margarita pizza is almost soupy. It is not crisp. Right. They're using buffalo and not yeah. the low moisture. Yeah, American but it's, it's a kind of soupy. Kind. And, and Tony Gemignani told me, he said, look, if I serve a, you can't deliver a margarita because they degrade immediately. Mm-hmm. He said, if I deliver a margarita to a table and two people are talking and they haven't tasted the pizza within a minute, I take it away and bring them another one. It degrades yeah. that quickly. You know, uh, a lot of the big pizza experts, uh, and I won't poo-poo them at all, but they don't use uh, a sauce that has been cooked or seasoned. No, it's much just tomato. All. It's right. just tomato. No, and that's what prefer- we did at Tony's place. I like the flavor of the herbs. I like the flavor of the salt. Well, the then you can do that. what you wish. You can yeah. put some how, on. How about you? I like herbs. I don't like them to overshadow something. They, they should complement. And a lot of times you'll find in any use of flavorings, the chef goes too far. You know, you want a little of this? I'll give you a lot of this. I stuffed peppers the other day with this extraordinary hot Italian sausage I get at my butcher and everyone okay. have a butcher. Oh, yeah. And we're eating it. And these were the big peppers, not the little ones. I could have gotten away with just hot in the little ones because the ratio of spice to the sweetness of the vegetable would have been, you know, 40, 60. This was too hot for the relief. I mean, it was still good, but next time I'm going to split it and do half hot, half sweet, and maybe throw in a little cheese because it was just a little too... All of the ingredients were great, but the balance was off. When you go to your butcher and you ask him for a little bit of the Italian sausage, are you going to ask him for the hot versus the sweet? I usually ask for hot because... I usually use it in a red sauce, uh-huh. which case it provides the the flavor base. Right. I mean, you can put in other things, but it's hard to screw up a hot red sauce. And I'm not a particular fan of sweet unless it's fennel. 
on its own. So I usually order uh, the hot sausage. But this is also, everyone needs a real butcher who's a professional. Agreed. Go in and say, I'm thinking about doing this. What should, like I went in, I bought Brajol the other day for the first time in years. And I said to the guy, this is going to sound stupid, but what, 350? He said, yeah, probably 350. Um, you know, keep an eye on it. I said, okay. And it's great. I threw one in the red sauce. Ooh. And this is good Brajol. There's no breadcrumb filler. I mean, it's just right. pork, cheese. So you, you brown it, embrace it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or I went in the other day, my wife wanted steak tartare. And I went in and I said, my wife wants steak tartare. What cut would you suggest? He said, look, you're, you're, this is going to surprise you, but I always suggest skirt steak. I said, okay. <laughs> my right. favorite. Yeah. Now, I'm not a steak tartare fan. I'm, I'm definitely afraid of E. coli. But yeah. um, no she loved for it. me either. Yeah. Well, it depends. I'll eat oysters and I know they can kill me. I'll even, despite my absolute fear of salmonella, I'll eat a real Caesar salad. But Ooh. having said that, uh, right. I like being able to go into a place where they know what they're doing. You know, yeah, my standard yeah. order there, once a week, I go in for two inch thick New York strips, eight links of hot Italian sausage, and then something else. And they uh -huh. know me when I'm coming in. They, you know, it's um, it's a lovely thing. Is it's it a, a wonderful uh, thing? Asian Jewish butcher? Who who is it that you're using? I'm using an Italian butcher. Italian butcher. Okay, that makes sense because and they also are a salumeria, and you can get stuffed pepper. I mean, there's. It's the perfect Italian market slash butcher shop. You know, there's a large Italian population in South Jersey, so right. it's real. So you're cooking a lot of the time. Are you starting to uh, incorporate ingredients like xanthan gum to help thicken instead of using cornstarch or flour or anything like that? No. I it would be awesome uh, with your short ribs. Yeah, you know what? I'd probably use filet. Um, okay. It's, it's a lot the of flavor thicken. there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But right now, the ribs have been on since noon. We'll Ooh. eat them around 6, and they're on the lowest possible heat with two cans of crushed tomatoes and a full container of stock, and they're just getting soft. You know, I want you to share the way that you cook your steak with, with our audience because this is something that's going to blow their minds, and I think it helps okay. them out a lot. I'm a reverse sear guy. I came to it only in the last year. When you cook steak normally, you, you put it in a hot pan or turn it over or even in an oven, you're at high heat, which means that the outsides, there's no way around this, get well done. If you reverse sear, hey, Fred, don't eat the garbage. I'll give you another three. There you go. Good Lord. Daddy's um, got a milk bone. No, you got this. <laughs> These are the little ones because Fred tends to get fat. So we're going to keep Fred. Okay. Um, I put my cats on low carb, so I could. Yeah, no, them. he's supposed to be on a diet. Yeah, the whole bit. <laughs> what the reverse sear is, is it's as close as you can get to sous vide right. without sous vide. Without the wet. The idea, the idea is to cook as much of the steak to a low temperature evenly so that, in essence, it's pink from side to side. So what I do is I put a steak in, a one-inch steak in, for about 20 minutes at 270. I then take it out, rest it a little bit so it finishes cooking, and then I throw it in the hottest pan I can get so that I get some sear on the outside. It's remarkable. It's pink from side to side. You have the degree of texture that a sear should give you. But the mistake is people think searing locks in juices, and it doesn't. It's It's been pretty much conclusively showed scientifically. It may make you feel good, but it's not going to make your food any juicier. 
Right. The only the good thing about searing is the color that it creates. But oh, yours- yeah, well, that's the Maillard reaction. Uh, and that's that's exciting. And we do eat with our eyes to a great extent. I am thrilled with how this is working. I haven't tried it with a steak with a bone. See, I'm, uh, I've been making strips. I suspect a steak with a bone is going to be problematic because of the heat that accumulates around the bone. But, you know, we'll see. I think for people who are less accustomed and comfortable in the kitchen, I would just add one element to your wonderful style, and that would be an instant probe thermometer. So you know know when you're at 130. I have terrible luck with thermometers. They just break or they're wrong. And they've I got just, these you know, good ones now that are you know, magnetic they? on the outside. They got the cable that goes through. They got the probe that goes in. And you I just get like, one of those. And then, and then you just set it. I want an internal temperature of 125. I'm going to pull it. It'll you, beep. You go to I'll be 25 fine. or 130 before you pull it. It depends on really what it is I'm looking to do, how long it might be sitting, what I'm going to be covering it with. But everybody's got a different feel. Some people want it. Rare. Some people want it medium. It depends on who I'm cooking for, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I'm there with the fifth steak, cutting it open just to make sure I can serve my. See, the problem is, I have no fear as an amateur cook. Uh-huh. If I invite you over for dinner, you may be getting something I've never made before, and it will be the best thing I ever tasted. Yeah, but then I'll never be able to recreate it. I made right. something that is in my repertoire. And it was much better than I'd ever made it before, but I don't know why. So it's not like I'm going to be able to duplicate that. Mm. Can you hold on one second? Yes, of hey, course. Sweetie, can you stir the short ribs? I love you. Gently. Gently, I'm back. sweetie. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Are you the one who had to introduce her to the room where they prepare food? When it comes to cooking, my wife is an incredible lawyer. There you go. (laughs) I went to her apartment for the first time when we started dating, and I opened the fridge, and this being Manhattan, it was nothing but white takeout boxes. And I said, how do you eat? And she pointed me to a drawer, and I pulled it open. And again, this is New York, long before you could get anything delivered. And it was takeout menus. Now, the reality is she can cook. She doesn't like to. And she only cooks a few things. She she makes great soup. But uh, mostly, uh, it's my job to cook. Right. The, the, the soup is great only when the can opener is working. Yeah, well, that helps too. No, she, <laughs> she, makes, she'll, uh, she makes chicken soup. She makes barley soup. Uh, uh-huh. She makes real soup. But most, most of the cooking is mine. Are you eating a lot of avocados and uh, fried eggs? Fewer than I thought. I went through a big avocado stage and then got uh-huh. tired of avocados because the reality is I know they raise them in Hawaii, but most of them, by the time they get to the States and are sold, are flavor deficient. Now mm. go to Mexico and have an avocado all day. Just oh, yeah. you know, keep keep sending me avocados and uh, ceviche and I'm good. But so much of produce or anything perishable is horrible by the time it gets to you. Um, right. I recently discovered by accident blueberries from Peru. Those are terrific. Now, once once they start sending more and more and more, I'm sure someone at the Peru Institute of Technology will figure out a way to take the flavor out and make them last longer. But for the moment, they're very good. Do you have any personal feelings about the whole big food, big medicine, big pharma interruption of our lives? Be, be, be more specific. What do you mean by that? <sighs> you know, I guess the big The fact food that I have to pay a fortune for 
diabetes medication that that should be available to me at a reasonable price because it's a chronic illness. Right. Yeah. No. I look. I the older I get, the the more I return to my views of my demonstrator childhood, which is that large corporations, for the most part, just screw you. And right. I hate to have come to that, but look, I worked at NBC when it was purchased by GE and Neutron Jack, and I've seen it up close. The fact of the matter is, under the influence of Jack Welch and the increasing globalization of country of companies that no longer feel as if they owe anything to any particular country or to any of their consumers, yeah, I, being anything has a very negative side to it. Does that mean that big pharma and its ability to create drugs for the pandemic is a bad thing? No. Right. The way pharma operates by taking advantage of the laws of the United States to charge us far more than people anywhere else, that's a crime. It shouldn't be allowed. The fact that all of the companies buying TV stations or news assets of any kind solely for profit as opposed to any sense of public service that's abhorrent to me uh yeah. so no i'm not i'm not thrilled by the corporate takeover of of anything but i'm not naive enough to think that we as a society can live without whatever benefits they produce i just wish there was a greater sense of ethics and morality you know, one of the things that gets me is that when was the last time you walked into a doctor's office and he or she asked you, what have you eaten today? Probably never. And I think that that's it's part of the while. problem. It's Doctors, been a while. They don't have the nutritional background, so how could they possibly take care of your health? Well, until my doctor threw up her hands, one of my blood sugar numbers came back insane and said, I'm done with you. Uh, go to an endocrinologist. Finally, I had a medical professional who explained to me what I should eat and what I shouldn't and why. And so in my mind, it was a doctor failure for years before right. I finally got the answers I should have gotten. At this point, there are, there are few industries less responsive to their consumers than medicine. I mean, yeah. my 105-year-old mother-in-law has been dealing over the last wow. few days with a serious medical issue on the part of her 78-year-old son, oh. and phone call after phone call to the son's doctor resulted in nothing. That's just how it goes, you know, um, unless you advocate for yourself or have someone advocating for you. I mean, look, I... And I may actually be doing a book on this. I'm stunned by uh, the poor service attendant to every American industry. And the fact of the matter is, uh, look, I was an investigative journalist. If you deliver my TV to the wrong address, I will go to your Wall Street required proxy statement. I will look up executive compensation. I will find your five highest paid employees. I will ignore the first three because they're public enough that they have unlisted numbers. Right. But I will get the phone number for the fourth or fifth, who's usually the chief information or chief technology officer. I'll call him at home and say, you guys are screwing me. When you get to the top of the pyramid, things tend to get fixed. Just as when I worked for that shopping channel, when the merchants screwed someone over, if the angry caller was lucky enough to accidentally be sent to me, uh -huh. I was not in charge of merchandise. I was in charge of television. The first thing I'd say to them is we will make this right. 
And then I would send an email to the chief merchant, CC'd to the CEO saying, you have a very angry customer here. I'd recommend you do something. Well, only an equalizer can provide that kind of conflict resolution. Most people aren't like you and me. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's a shame. You're talking about service. Let's, let's flip back to the whole restaurant world and, and, uh, and the service that exists or perhaps does not exist. When a staffer recites the specials and then opts yeah. not to tell you the prices, that's well, been one yeah. of the things that's made me crazy my whole life. The problem with service in restaurants to a great extent is that there aren't enough professionals in it anymore. Right. It's what you do if you can't get hired uh, as an actor. Right. Or if you're between jobs as a teacher, the the tradition of a server being a legitimate and respected profession has never grown here the way it's grown in Europe, where, by the way, you get paid as a professional and you don't have to live on tips. And good service in a restaurant is... Um, is a wonderful thing. A meal is an experience. So good service in a restaurant helps make the experience. Yeah. It, it all comes down to management and training and so on. But there are, like you said, there aren't very many lifers here in the United States like there are yeah. elsewhere. It's a shame. It's not, it's not a respected profession and it's right. tougher than hell and it ought to be. It ought to be. You know, there's nothing I like better than I sit down in a restaurant and say, what would you recommend? Okay, what would you recommend against? Uh -huh. That's the best question an honest server can answer. Right. Yeah. What, what shouldn't I eat here? You mean the chili that comes out of a can from Cisco? I from <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like when they know their food. If they understand how yeah. it's prepared, what ingredients are used, and, and its general flavoring kind of components, I'm going to be yeah, I a much... To, there's an, a, a restaurant on Long Beach Island, New Jersey, that shall remain nameless, that at one point made the best fried oysters I've ever had anywhere in the world. The chef began to attract some notoriety. She appeared on the Food Network. She has left. It ain't the same. It's just whoever took over decided to save a few bucks. I'm sure they've taken the buttermilk out of the batter for the oysters because it just ain't the same. And that's a shame. Now, it's on a tourist island. They'll probably keep making their nut because people will come for two weeks and go to the restaurant. What time a, only. I'm done. Yeah. That's it. I'm out of there. Yeah, they're not looking for return or repeat customers, no. you know. I'm out of there. Yeah, yeah. How about the... Uh, when they tell you to save room for dessert. <laughs> I've been eating my whole life. Yeah, no, all of that, the, no, the one I can't stand is, are you still working on that? Oh, right. It's not my job. I'm having a meal. Now, what I do appreciate is a server who actually wants to fulfill your expectation. We went to what by Long, well, by Long Beach Island. Long Beach Island has expensive restaurants. It's no cheaper than New York. Because yep. they have a captive pool of diners. We went to what these days is the trendiest, hippest restaurant on LBI. I think it's one of them that Taylor Swift and company went to when they came here for that wedding. Anyway, we sat down and I had not eaten there either forever or in a long time. And we sat down and I said to the waitress, I'm going to be a problem because I am deep in dealing with diabetes. I can't have anything with any kind of bread product. And she went out of her way to check with the chef to see, for example, if the roasted Brussels sprouts had been dusted in panko. Right. 
And she got We're damn well sugar. tipped. <laughs> yeah, she got damn well tipped for it. Yeah, and, and it can oh, happen yeah. anywhere. We were at in Michigan. We went to a Jap, uh, Jap, no, a Korean. Wow, that was a mistake. We went to a Korean barbecue joint. And the waitress, Korean, not all that much English, understood when I said to her, is there sugar in the marinade on the short ribs? And she said, absolutely. You don't want those. You can have these right. or these. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It shouldn't be painful. Right, so. exactly. It's, you could always move someone to some something else that they won't. Unlike the New York coffee shops, which put the regular coffee in the decaf, um, <laughs> the carafe with the carafe with the orange top and pretend it's decaf. Right. I accept right. that. I do not expect that restaurant coffee is ever really decaf. Yeah, it's really funny. Just the deception that occurs all the way from top to bottom. When, when I was first starting the Hawaii food tours, which was a uh, feeding, educating and entertaining people here in Honolulu. Nice. Company. We got crushed in 2020 by COVID, but we had a great 16-year uh. run. And it was kind of a famous business. It did really well. It was fun. Mm -hmm. But at the beginning, we used to laugh when people would say they're gluten-sensitive or they're vegan or vegetarian. I'm thinking, why are you on a food tour? It just makes yeah. no sense, right? Um, but you have all different kinds of people with different expectations always lining up in front of you. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because... As a food snob, you would think I'm not into food tours. It is the best way to find out about a place. We went to a Spain a few years back. In Madrid, we signed up for the tapas tour. Uh-huh. First night there. Extraordinary. Oh, I yeah. learned so much. I had such a good time. I I learned so much about and I had been to Spain working many times, but this was the first time I was with my wife and I was a tourist. And what I learned going from tapas bar to tapas bar was extraordinary. And then, of course, we also took a cooking class, which was amazing. Of and I made the mistake. See, I, I have rudimentary, non-pluperfect, um, present tense Spanish left over from high school. Okay. I'm not bad at that. So when we got to cooking class, I attempted a little Spanish. And the teacher, who was somebody's grandmother, decided that, I was the star pupil and she was going to talk to me. So I was nodding yes to a lot of rapid fire stuff I never understood. But boy, did I learn how to make that omelet that the Spaniards call a tortilla. Right. Oh. Yeah, food tours are amazing. When I started Hawaii Food Tours in 04, we were this, only the second food tour company in the United States. Now, uh, 20 years later... There yeah. are food tours, thousands of them all over the world and every And it's a city. great thing. Yeah. It's a great, I would love, I've been to Paris a million times. I've worked there. I would love a, a Paris food tour. Yeah. They um, exist now. Or Rome or, or any of them. Uh, it's yeah. just in my mind, a wonderful way to get a sense of a place and a people. And as I do speeches from time to time, and I talk at some length about how it's by eating the foods of another country that you begin to learn something about that country. When I first moved overseas for NBC, I had never considered living out of the country and I had right. to catch up real quickly. And so much of it was, you know, food as a gateway to a society. The mezza that everyone shares in Greece, emblematic of the communal values of relationships there. The, the shakrut in Strasbourg, 
representative of the fact that that's been a disputed region of Europe back and forth between uh, Germany and France for years. Right. The, the, uh, the wild boar ragu in Tuscany representative of the fact that it was a poor region. And if you didn't shoot it, you weren't going to eat. We could eat that. Yeah. I mean, there you go. You want to do just a little lightning round kind of thing? Sure. I'll do whatever you want. Whoa, we've been on for a while. I just have so much enjoyed speaking with well, you. I'm enjoying I, this too. So I, lo- I love your book, Food, Food Americana. Thank you very much. Uh, how's it doing, by the way? And what kind of marketing do you do for it? To, it's done to get fine. Uh-huh. Um, the reality of writing a book is that unless you were James Mishner or are currently James Patterson, you're not going to sell a billion books. It does fine. It uh, I get a little check every three months, and it keeps selling. So the good thing is, it's a a bit of an evergreen. Yeah, and yeah. you know, every Christmas season, I go back online and say, "Hey, it's a great gift." And everyone watching this podcast, I am sure, will go to Amazon right now and buy a copy of Food Americana, or even two or three. They make great gifts, and I'm still paying off my daughter's graduate school. Feel free <laughs> to support my daughter's graduate school. What is your daughter's name? My my daughter's name is Hannah Nicole Page, and she is one of the great young poets in America. She's uh, this month, I think, being published in two different literary publications. Look her up. Uh, is is Hannah a palindrome? It is a palindrome. Was that purposely done by you and, and mom? My wife, Roberta, and I were looking for an H name uh-huh. to as an homage to her father, Hi. Sure. And we came up with Hannah. Wow. Definitely hit hit up Amazon, get the book, get a few books because, you know, Hanukkah is right around the corner. Get 12, 15, 30 copies, whatever you need. Send them <laughs> to me, I'll sign them. What famous person have people told you throughout your life that you look like? At one point before I was gray, when I was covering the troubles in Northern Ireland, I looked like Jerry Adams, the head of Sinn Féin, uh-huh. which was potentially dangerous. Yeah, a little bit. I've been compared to Coppola when I was I was too. I was yeah. too at one point. Uh-huh. I've been compared to Richard Dreyfus, uh-huh. although I like to think that Coppola and Dreyfus are often compared to me. Very, very good. Very good. You didn't happen to see uh, the Bill Maher, Richard Dreyfus sit down. I did, where he's just sitting there like this. <laughs> Either he was so messed up or so uncomfortable oh, he, or a combination. Well, look, he's, been, he's been messed up for years. So. <laughs> and he was at one point a very good actor. And, oh, yeah, absolutely. Just I have curiosity. a feeling yeah. all of the cocaine in um, Bolivia went up his nose at one point, but... Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you watch The Morning Show? Because you have... I love it. The... Okay. Hey, I you. used... Look, I used to put GMA on the air from the control right. room. How can I not watch The Morning Show? So is uh, Billy Crudup one of the best actors of all time? What yeah. he brought to that part, which was... Look, all of the characters on that show are cartoons Uh the ability to put some life into a cartoon is very hard he did a great job the The writers are amazing his the worst job on that show was Uh actually done by an actress i like legally blonde uh yeah reese witherspoon Uh she was kind of flat for me i thought jennifer aniston did a good job but crudup was amazing yeah and uh, by the way so is john ham who is always good but you always sit there looking at him going Man, I bet he had a lot of girlfriends. Because <laughs> if I look like that, you'd have a lot. I was young, I'd be yep. dead today. Right. Same here. I get it. 
Who are some of your favorite musical artists when you were growing up? Carol King, James Taylor, uh, the Beatles, of course, Diamonds and Rust, Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Who am I? I'm missing a ton. I was a teenage disc jockey back then. Right, uh, uh, Don right. McLean. Okay, um, yeah. But when I went in for an MRI recently, they asked me what music I wanted, and I said Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and they hit Pandora, and it was great. There it was. Have you have you received a CAC scan, a calcium scan of your heart? No, I have not. Uh, Although very, I do have a fake hip. Do you really? Is it titanium? Yeah. Can you walk no, through a metal ceramic. detector? It's ceramic. <laughs> Left hip. It's perfect. What's the correct beverage for pizza? Beer. Probably a well, lager. Root beer. <laughs> oh, Personal God. taste. No, no, no. <laughs> See, root beer, ah, there's just too much in root beer. If you A lager is light, and if you're eating a spicy pizza, the carbonation in beer will take some of the spicy oil away. Root beer? Uh-uh. Okay. You remember, because you and I are in that same realm of age uh, and so on, you remember when almond cookies at the Chinese restaurants had an entire almond in the center, and then eventually went to a half, and then it went to a sliver, and like now it's maybe microscopic. What is the it's correct not beverage anymore? What's the correct beverage for an almond cookie? Doctor Brown's celery soda. Water, what? just cold water. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're wrong, dude. <laughs> uh, wine it. or beer? With what? For you? Anything? Yep. I would have said wine, although I ended up doing a 27-part syndicated series called Beer Geeks, in which uh, I developed a deep appreciation for the range that beer covers and the fact that it's easier to match beer with food. Where can we see that? I'll send you a copy. That's about all I can say. Okay, gotcha. I mean, yeah. I'm in the process. I'm going through a new development cycle of TV shows at the moment, and I'm trying to bring that back. I have... Four major projects, all in the TV space, none of which I can talk about because I'd have to kill you, but they're really good. So if you were and to I kill will, me, would you then yeah. be willing to talk to the dead body about it? I would. Uh, okay. I th Well, I'll say this. One of them is a TV adaptation of uh, Food Americana. I can tell you about that. Ah, nice. Um, and I'm, I'm chasing a very important Hollywood star to host it. And I got my fingers crossed. We'll see. Oh, wow. What do you yeah. think of um, some of these travel shows, the Eugene Levy one, the uh, one with the every, Everybody Feed Phil and uh, Stanley fine. Tucci? Um, any of those? Oh, Stanley Tucci's was great. Uh -huh. The other two are gimmicks that are much more about the quirky behavior of the host than they are about an homage to the right. food. Right. Um, Stanley Tucci show is one of the few things I've ever seen on TV that I said to myself, God damn, I wish I'd done that. Uh -huh. It was brilliantly done and he was perfect. So will your show be anything in that realm? Well, it, it, it basically would be a history of American food with the same sense of panache as Stanley Tucci, but uh, tailored to the personality of the host that I hope to get. You know, TV is about people. You can't just plug someone into something. Right. The frenetic pace of diners was created in part, to a great extent, to A, support Guy's personality and emphasize the good parts, and B, since he was a new uh, commodity, to never 
originally to never give people time to get bored as they got used to him. I mean, yeah. as a good friend of mine, the best editor I've ever worked with said upon first viewing the show, he didn't work on it. He said, man, that's relentless. And that was the intent. Right, right, right. Get, keep the energy going. Yeah. Now the host for Food Americana, if I get who I want, is a little more cerebral. Uh-huh. So the show will feel a little more cerebral. Hey, there's um, nothing wrong with the Elton Brown types of the world. Yeah. I mean, uh, there would be more emotion to this than Elton Brown, whose uh-huh. whole shtick is, I'm technical, I'm a scientist, and for some reason I'm promoting questionable nutraceuticals on the air. But So you think he goes in an entirely too strong of a direction? I mean, I don't know what Alton Brown is. He's obviously been very successful with his personality. So yeah, if yeah. I were making an Alton Brown show, that's what I would make. Um, but you have to you have to program for whoever you've got. I'm going to guess that Thanksgiving is your favorite holiday. Am I right? The food of Thanksgiving is the best, but that's because for 20 years I've bought a turducken, uh-huh. which is a wonderful thing. And it arrives frozen from a place in Florida. And you throw it in the oven and you take it out. The only thing with the turducken is you have to cut it the day before you serve it or it falls apart. What you want in a turducken is the inside of a tree. You want to see specific layers of different items. Right. And if you cut it warm, it just falls apart. So you need to cut it after it's chilled, then put it back in the oven in its own gravy to warm it back up. I found that out the the hard way. Does it arrive cooked but frozen? No, it, it arrives raw but frozen. Oh, interesting. Oh. Yeah, it's great. I'll give you the link for the place. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Ever had one? Me. I have. Did you like it? Yeah. You yeah, don't yeah, have yeah. to? What's not to like? No, for, for me, what a turducken does is it saves the dry, tasteless turkey by basting it in the fat from the duck. It, you know, frankly, you could probably just have a duck for Thanksgiving and it would be fine. But yes, that's, that's my favorite food oriented holiday. So that's what you guys will have. This yeah, it's on the way. It's, it's oh. en route. Where's it from? Florida, the Panhandle. Okay. Have you used the air fryer contraption? Never have. My wife's been talking about it. People have been talking about it. Um, I'll probably it's pretty amazing. It. It's pretty amazing. It especially up, the problem is it takes up counter space. It does, but you know, you have to move it to the laundry room when you're done with it. That's also the bathroom. <laughs> Damn, I can't cook in the bathroom. David, when was the last time you Googled yourself? A million years ago. Oh, is that right? Yeah, what comes up? Hold on. Uh, oh, just great stuff. Really great stuff. Probably, probably that angry article about me that was done years ago. Hold on, David. I like that article. Was that New York Times that you spoke to? You sent that letter to? Or was uh, it Wall Street Journal? It was, one of the, it was someone. Did I send a letter there. to somebody? Hold on. David C. Page comes up first. Someone asked you a question and you responded to your time with Triple D and, you know, that kind of mm. stuff. It was, it was direct, but it was vague as well. So, but it was, I, they I definitely. Tend, I tend to be direct, but vague. It, but it, it did express, you know, a lot of heartfelt emotional stuff too. So I liked well, it. Well, look, this is a creative thing. If you, if you yeah. don't care that deeply about what you're doing, don't do it. That's right. That's right. Where do people want to reach you? I'm online. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Food you ready for some new friends? Facebook and Instagram. I'm, I'll, I'll say hi to anybody. Go right ahead. Is it just a straight David Page search on well, Facebook if people on. want to let's plug in with Let's go to you? me on Facebook and see what the link says. Facebook.com. Hold on. Huh. Let me see if I can. Uh, hold on. 
I'm there. Look for me. Uh, but uh, I can't get the address. I'm I'm kind of a luddite, so that's cool. No problem. I'll just ask you more questions while you're looking that's, for that's it. That's all right. I'm I'm in the middle of. I also do a radio show. I've been tied up on that all day. So. Ah, are you a baseball or football fan? These days, more football. Although I was a Tom Brady fan, and uh -huh. now I'm kind of at a loss for a team to follow. Did you catch last night's game? By the way, I did not. Was it okay. any good? Oh yeah, it was great. <laughs> I, I'm, I wish people would get off Al Michaels' ass. He's as good as has ever done a game, and if he's bored, I'm sure I am too. Right, right. Are you a briefs or a boxers guy? Oh, briefs. There's oh, too God. much, too much <laughs> flapping around in box. There's just way too much fabric going on. Yeah, there's there's too much stuff there. So since you live where uh, seasons occur, what is your favorite season? Spring. Any special reason why? You're, it's a rebirth after you've been stuck inside in cold all winter. I don't like cold weather, even though I've lived most of my life in cold environments. Even though you're up in the Northeast, you didn't read the fine print, apparently, which says you need to go down no, to Florida I, at some I, point. No, I treated it like the warnings on medication. Yeah, I could die, but... Uh-huh. <laughs> The side effects. Don't pay attention. Yeah, I, I, what? A heart attack? What the hell? <laughs> well, we'll have to all do a search for David Page and Food Americana if we want to reach you. Please do. Did you have a good time today? Had a wonderful time. You're my new best friend. We'll talk. Fant we'll fantastic. I definitely want to continue the uh, the energy a little bit and good see deal. if we can. It would be fun to collaborate too, because like I'm stuck out to. here. I'm all by myself. I'd love to. This is not exactly a hotbed of Judaism where I'm at, so I need some buddies. Yeah, either was Minnesota, dude. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, we'll stay in touch. Good. That's, That's one of the things I like about this line of work. You make new friends. Yeah. Any parting shots, David? Just, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, buddy. Uh, it was really great having you on 50 Tastes of Grey. I hope that, uh, you know, if you want to return at any time, you got some new projects happening, then we'll have you on again. Will do. I appreciate it. If, if my computer wasn't fuming at this moment, I'd just continue speaking and chatting with you. But uh, this has been a pretty good, good size schmooze. And uh, it'll it's be been lovely. And I, and I have got ribs to, uh, to go check on. Oh, enjoy. That sounds fantastic. Thank you. Thanks again. Take care. You too. Aloha. Bye.